Tales One Podcast, a weekly audio broadcast rated M for mature. Not because of the filthy, filthy language, but because most of the listeners are in their 80s. And now here are the only podcast hosts who print out the entire Urban Dictionary every six months for some light bedtime reading material. Jennifer Jamula and Allison Goldberg. Hello, everybody. I'm Jen. And I am Allison. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 2GF1PF. Uh, 2G1P. We're a podcast here, as you can tell. Um, Allie and I are performers. We had a live comedy show called Blogalogs, where we used the internet as our script. We then had a web series called Two Girls, One Show. We met people behind those internet posts we'd performed all those years, went on adventures. Uh, and now we're here with Two Girls, One Podcast with The Daily Dot. And we're talking to people behind internet communities and phenomena that we find interesting also here is our producer, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. Hello. We've slightly delved into today's topic in some different ways throughout time, uh, but today we're going to go a little deeper. So uh, we're talking about linguistics. Is that right, Allie? It is. It is. It is. <laughs> and I believe we covered this slightly with our emoji episode, which I That's want right. to say was September 3rd, 2018. That's the release. <laughs> you know the okay, date. Because sure. I, I looked it up sure. in advance of this podcast, but and then I, I but I don't. I think that's right. Well, I'm looking at it, and you're correct. Oh, yeah. That is the date. Yes. Oh, well awesome. Done. God, it's crazy. How long ago that was. It does not feel like it was that over two no. years ago. No, definitely mm-hmm. does not. What? I'm so yeah. glad we have this time capsule for our lives. Um, also, right. the uh, Game of Thrones linguist that we had on, I did not look up the episode number. Does anyone know? What was the date? What was the date? When did we release it? Mm-hmm. No idea. Great. Good job, team. Good job. <laughs> T- God, I'm the only one doing any work over here. <laughs> <laughs> so today no, we're we, talking yeah. with an, a linguist who's also an author and a podcaster. Her name is Gretchen McCulloch, and she just authored uh, in 2019 a book called Because Internet, which is about how language is evolving faster than ever because of the internet, how we're interconnected and Honestly, all this text-based communication. Yep. It's such a good title for her book. It's great. It really is. It's perfect. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Let's let's talk to her. <laughs> but before we do, Ugh. I know. We have to do it. Okay. It's trivia time. <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah, cool. I thought, I thought we were going into a choreographed I, number. Oh. I cannot activate the trivia until someone says it's trivia time. So if no one says it, we don't have to do it. But maybe I will just say it, and that is legally binding as well. So. God, I love linguistics, and I'm so excited about this episode. Obviously, we're talking about the language of the internet, but here... I would like to talk about a very important breakthrough in the study of language, and that is the Rosetta Stone. Mm. Not the app, but the actual ancient Egyptian stone that the software was named for. Uh, This dates back to 196 BC. Actually, not that old in the scheme of ancient civilizations, but very old. Uh, It was uncovered centuries later by some of Napoleon's French soldiers, uh, uncovered or let's say rediscovered in 1799. And the Rosetta Stone is remarkable because it says the same thing, but it says it in three languages. So it, it has 
ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, it also then says the same words in demotic or demotic. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. That was the common language of the Egyptian people at this time, 196 BC. And also, and probably most importantly, it also has the text in ancient Greek. Uh, and at this time, the Greeks had conquered or were administrating uh, this area of Egypt uh, after Alexander the Great had uh, moved in and uh, asserted his control. So the stone was key for archaeologists in decoding ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs or hieroglyphics because they could finally correlate these mysterious symbols, which they knew very little about, to other languages which they understood. So we knew about we knew what ancient Greek looked like. We didn't know hieroglyphs match up the letters, boom, we can finally understand uh, ancient Egyptian. So, most people understand the significance, but few know what the stone actually says. So today's question is, what is written on the Rosetta Stone? I have three choices. Okay. A, a decree issued by a council of priests stating that they support Ptolemy V, a 13-year-old Egyptian king. Hmm. B, an act of rebellion by a religious cult who rejected the Greek rule of the Ptolemaic di dynasty. Jesus Christ. Tol Ptolemaic dynasty. It's okay. spelled with a P, isn't it? It is. Yes. I, thank you for clarifying. I know what Ptolemy, you're talking about. I know what you're Ptolemy. talking about. But I don't you know remember the answer for this. Go on. C, the Rosetta Stone is a detailed account ledger for 12 tons of grain and one ton of salt transacted between the court of Ptolemy V and the Seleuc Seleucid, Seleucid Empire, which is another Greek state in Western Asia. That is choice C. So I'm going with C. I would right. also like to go with C. Is that okay if we don't diversify today? Of course. Well, it's a God, but yeah. Yeah. God damn it. I know. I know. <laughs> like our rule is diversify, but I feel strongly that it's C. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right, so you're both going with C, that it is nothing special. It's just, uh, you know, a, a spreadsheet, basically. Yeah. We will find out the correct answer after this break. Well, hello there. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. But thank you especially to these people who have donated to our Patreon at the $10 or more level. That's we right. Our deepest to... gratitude. Yes, yes. Deepest yes. gratitude, yes. Goes to Chris Harrison. Jerry Duran. Jessica Fox. Melissa Elliott. James Dozier. Deborah Dubervance. Kathy Phillips. William. And Matthew Scott. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. And now a real advertisement entitled Lots of Condoms in Raleigh, North Carolina. From the number one website for secondhand prophylactics, Craigslist. Because of COVID, I have not been able to get out and be as promiscuous as I used to. Therefore, have a lot of condoms that need to be used. Different sizes, colors, etc. That there's no like information, there's no pickup, it's just like I have these. Yeah, just you know, come find me. Boop, 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 boop. 
Well, it sounds like that guy could use some help from our linguist today. That was not particularly well written. Well, maybe for inter- <laughs> Craigslist speak, that's that's fine, I guess. Uh, Ooh, Craigslist languages. Yeah. That's uh, the whole podcast in uh, itself. <laughs> we're going to get to that. But first, what is on the Rosetta Stone, the mm. famous stell, as it is called, uh, as archaeologists mm. might call it, that helped decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs? Uh, was it a decree issued by priests supporting the Greek king, Ptolemy V? Was it an act of rebellion uh, against that king or that dynasty? Or C, the answer you both chose, was it basically a, a spreadsheet accounting for grain and salt uh, tr- transacted between two empires? Uh, sticking with C. Sticking with it. The correct answer is A, a bunch of priests Damn saying, it. yep, it's all good here. The Rosetta Stone is essentially a government document, which just shows that the priesthood supports the king of of the era, uh, and that it also goes on to say on the stone that this uh, message, this stone would be placed in every large temple in the area. So theoretically, there was supposed to be many Rosetta Stones, uh, and it was written in three languages because the hieroglyphics are are the priestly language, the very formal language, if you will, of the time. Uh, as I said, de- Demotic or Demotic was the common language, and then uh, the Greeks had conquered the area, so the, the administrators, the sort of local uh, bureaucrats, were Greek, and they needed to see this too. There's no archaeological evidence that other stones were placed anywhere. None, none others have been found, but the stone itself says, yep, order up a bunch of these, we got to put this proclamation everywhere and whether they did or not is unknown uh but i did find that interesting wow and now it's an app (laughs) stone to app wow that just really (laughs) took a leap i'm learning a new language through an app you are yes yeah i'm learning spanish through an through a site called ripe my friend worked on it just thought maybe that would be a little relevant tidbit that's spelled cool. R Y P E because, of course, it has to be spelled funny. But <laughs> that's right. I, um, as you guys both know, I'm going to Mexico for three weeks because I figure, why not? I'm going to go work from there. And my friend has a language learning site, and so I signed up, and I've had three lessons so far. What? How, what can you tell us? How can you? What can you say? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I'm sorry. Hola. Uh, hola. hola. That's what. That's a word. No. Okay. Yo aprendí español en escuela, pero hace 20 años y yo no recuerdo español ahora, pero ahora con Ripe, yo <laughs> aprenderé again. How do you say again? <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I don't, I don't that know. That sounded great to me. Muchas gracias. Cool question. How does the site work? How does this, how how does it work? Because there's all different schools of thought about, is it audio? Is it lessons? Is it text? How how are you learning? So, I mean, I've only taken three lessons, but so far it um, has paired me with, you know, a native speaker who is also a teacher. He has like his master's in teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'm paired with a teacher in Colombia. And he's great so far. <laughs> and this week he told me that his esposa was coming to visit. And I was like, esposa? And he was like, esposo. And I was like, oh, he's a gay teacher. I love him. And like, it's uh, sort of funny because uh, I was like, he has no idea what a deviant I am. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, huh. he did a Fulbright and met his husband in the States. That's so cool. But wow, he's you're going to make a new Columbia. friend too. This is great. I, I love him already. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I told him in Spanish that 
my esposo also wasn't here with me right now because he doesn't exist. And <laughs> he laughed. And I was really proud of myself because I made that joke in Spanish. That's, so yeah, I thought right. really I cool. Say. Wow. I was I'm like, done. mi esposo también no aquí porque él no existe. <laughs> How do you say I'm, I quit the dating apps again in Spanish? Mm, yo cancelo mi subscripciones a las aplicaciones. I made that up. Here's Hail the thing Tinder. about Spanish. You can kind of just like add a vowel onto an English <laughs> verb or noun and hope you're correct. Yeah. <laughs> It's not yeah, really offensive. Yeah. Let's talk to our actual linguistic expert <laughs> now. Please, let's welcome to the show, everyone, Gretchen McCulloch. She's a linguist, fellow podcaster, and author of Because Internet. Welcome, Gretchen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I took linguistics in college, and it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say. Are we... Are we having fun? Okay. So uh, 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 something that really struck me about your book was at the very beginning, I had never really thought of English as having a formal versus an informal language. But in the first few pages of your book, you make it very clear that there is a formal versus informal so, so for instance, like I, I, this is like a very convoluted way to start this interview, but this is, <laughs> but this is where I've chosen. So, okay, so <laughs> go I, forth. I studied, I studied Arabic uh, a little mm -hmm. bit a long time ago, and you know, I think anyone who studies Arabic talks about how frustrating it is because there's fusha, there's like the modern standard, and then there's all the dialects that people use. Um, and I thought that English did not have that, but um, your book really elucidated for me the extent to which English really does have this at this point, or is developed. It. So I was wondering if you could break down for our listeners how formal language was passed down previously and then how the internet came along and fucked it all up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I also studied Arabic for a very short amount of time in, in undergrad and it was an interesting experience because it's you do crazy. have this sort of, you have this, you know, these different varieties and English is not quite to that extent. Right, but if right. you think about, you know, somebody in, I don't want to, it's like, Australia versus Scotland versus, you know, uh, like somewhere in rural Canada where I'm, I'm Canadian, uh, they're going to talk very differently from each other. And yet the books they're reading are likely to be very similar. So the formal written variety is you, you know, you go to school and here's uh, this variety that you're learning to write, which is not necessarily the same as how you actually say it. Right. You have some words. Um, so here's a pop quiz question for no, there are no wrong answers uh, for, oh, yeah, <laughs> for both are. of you. Some people uh, are wrong and some people are getting voted off. No, that's that's not what the book's about. The book's about how we're all right. Okay. Uh, yeah. The past tense of catch. So today I catch the ball. Yesterday I caught. And uh, Ali? I would also say caught. Um, and then the a small bed that you might like order in a hotel or something if you're if you need an, a supplementary bed is a cot. cot. Yeah, cot. So, so do you say both of those words the same way or differently? Oh. Slightly differently. I think yeah. it's cot, cot. It's like a little more yeah. You open say them differently. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with Chen. Okay, so I say them the same. Um, cot and cot. They both well, sound that's the same because to me. You're a freak. <laughs> well, this is the thing that linguists really want everyone to know about languages. There doesn't have to be one way that's correct. There can be a different 
way that it reflects where you grew up and what you're used to. But there's no one thing that's right or wrong. If I leave you with one thing from this interview, it's going to be stop saying correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jen and I are actually from sim- a similar, we're from the same region, I would right, say. So right. it where makes are you, sense. Where are you from? Pennsylvania. And Maryland. Right. Okay. So it's a similar region. And there are some speakers in the U.S. that have the what they call the caught-caught merger. Uh, and some speakers that have a caught-caught distinction. Pretty much everybody in Canada has the merger. Um, in other countries, in Australia, which is where the co-host of my podcast, Lingthusiasm, is from, they have a caught-caught distinction. Um, and that's one of the things in English where you learn how to write. And you, everybody in English learns to write these two words differently. But for some people, that written difference reflects something that's going on in their speech. And for some people, that written difference reflects something that isn't going on in their speech. But we all learn to write the version where they're written uh, differently. So that's just one kind of micro example of like the written version of English is a lot more standardized than the spoken version of English. Except when it comes to the Internet, (laughs) because... People online, and this is what I talk about in Because Internet, which is my book about this, um, people online uh, often, you know, do sort of creative respellings to have the spelling slightly more closely represent exactly how, uh, you know, you say it or exactly what you, what kind of bits you want to emphasize, or what kind of bits you're most excited about. And why not put that in the spelling? Um, there's a linguist named Rachel Tatman who's done research about how people write uh the the caught caught distinction which also happens in other words um so like bought like the past tense of buy and bought like a robot you know there's the same thing there so it, it occurs across a bunch of words um and people sometimes will respell certain sounds differently depending on whether their dialect has this distinction or or has this merger and it's sort of you know a way of reflecting kind of exactly your your own local identity or your own personal identity or personal story or how exactly you say something uh, and trying to put that on in writing because you don't have some sort of editor going in and trying to standardize and like tell you that you're wrong you can write things exactly how you want them right okay but but taking it back a little what i thought was was really what really struck me in in the first few pages of your book was how like language used to be very limited in how it was passed down right so it was like newspapers radio you know well, it was very it formal, right? And then the internet came and fucked it up. Well, or made it better, right? Because depends on whether you mean fucked it up in the like, good sense good or the bad sense, right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes fucking is good, sometimes fucking is bad. Fucking, um, I would argue, is the most versatile word. <laughs> it's it is a very versatile word. Another very versatile word, ironically, is the word "set" in English. It's got like the most number of definitions in the OED. Wow. So um, sometimes these little words that you're like, "What's so interesting about set?" But there are just you know you can set the table, you can set up, set someone up with someone, set this, set that, and there's just all these sorts of weird things you can do with set. Um, but that's kind of here nor there. Um, there are all kinds of weird things you can do with fuck. I, there are um, the. Um, the uh, we can we can get into this paper about fuck uh, later if you want. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm still trying to answer your first question. Yes. <laughs> so what's interesting about it is when you say about language getting passed down, right? Because lang- you don't learn language first by reading and writing. Generally, most people, right? You learn language from your your parents, your friends, your little other kids at daycare or kindergarten or whatever. Um, and most people learn to speak English before they learn to write it. And so there's there is this uninterrupted chain of oral transmission as well. And each of the different varieties of English and stuff, they're all old because they're all they can all be traced back to other people who were speaking. 
the formal varieties get passed down in this sort of very narrow sense of like, okay, here's here are your books, here are your newspapers. Like they have to go through an editor, they have to go through this sort of standardized control, at least after the invention of the printing press. Because before the printing press, you know, the monks kind of did whatever the fuck they wanted. So mm-hmm. we're going back to the monks. So the internet is like the modern day monk. Well, and it's really interesting, right? Because before the printing press, it's just as easy for, I mean, by just as easy, I mean like super hard. Um, it's just <laughs> as easy for uh, anybody to produce more writing as it is for them to to like it's to consume it. And anybody can anybody can be a reader or a writer because anybody could write something down. Of course, it's super hard to like get access to parchment and like distribute it, uh, and it's very expensive. But it's like just as expensive and difficult for everybody. Um, and well, I mean, not quite true, but like, let's pretend that's true. Um, <laughs> the it's really it's really hard, but it's like hard kind of all the way around. And there's no one person that's like looking over your handwritten stuff and being like, no, you should spell it that way because you've written it down. So you just write it that way. And the monks would write stuff like spell the same word differently in the same sentence. It'd be like, oh, I want dog to have like an E at the end now. And now I don't want it to like, that's fine. Whatever. I'm just doing what I want. Like this is very like you know, kind of anarchy, fuck around and find out, like, here's, why not? I'll just write it this way. Like, Shakespeare wrote his own name, like, six different ways in his lifetime. His own signature, like, spells his name a bunch of different ways. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> because, like, why Why not? Like, the, the idea of, like, oh, we should standardize spelling was just, like, not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a thing that happens um, with the printing press, you come in um, and suddenly you like if you want something to get disseminated to a whole bunch of people, you have to give it to someone else who's going to typeset it for you and like make it print. So somebody else now has that power over your writing. And that's where you get the standardization of spelling. That's where you get the idea that there's like some right way to do things because somebody else has come in and been like, OK, well, but like my press is going to always spell this word this way. Yeah. The printing press, quote unquote, fucked it up. Humans have been speaking language press naturally up. for thousands The internet of years. is trying to unfuck it. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> unfucking. Great. <laughs> so, okay, I'm glad we brought this back to fucking as we will throughout this interview. <laughs> uh, the internet means you don't have to get a copy editor to approve of your tweet before you send it. Like yeah. you can just post it. Which is so, so unfortunate, really. I know you love it, but so it's like great. really a problem. It's really a problem. Okay, so so let's pause there. So so why do you think that this major shift is important? Like what uh what is the value and why should our listeners care about this shift? I think it's really exciting because if we look back, you know, a hundred years ago and we try to find out how were people talking back then? We have this very narrow view of like, okay, so this is what we have recorded. We have like, we have some books, we have some newspapers, we have some like letters from people, but mostly they were like fancy rich people who had the time to write letters and whose letters got preserved. Uh, And we don't have as much of what actual ordinary people were talking or like the full range of how people were were communicating with each other because most people were just not important enough to have their stuff written down. Whereas now, if we want to say, okay, how are people talking in the, the 2000s, the 2020s or whatever, we can, we can look at a much broader spectrum of like, what's going on? And you just, you have that freedom of like, okay, yeah, you can try to communicate things. So I want to talk about sarcasm because there is, there has been like a 500 year effort to try to figure out how to write sarcasm. And we finally succeeded. And I think that's really cool. Because sarcasm is great. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, and what do you think are the rules for writing sarcasm? So there are lots of them. 
when you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I communicate there's a double meaning here? But you can't just be like, I'm going to say there's a double meaning like out loud, because if you wanted to convey your meaning like completely clearly, we already have a good good tool for that. And it's called not being sarcastic. (laughs) So how do you convey that sort of like somewhat double meaning, but not entirely double meaning? But like there's still room for plausible deniability, but it's like it's there, but it's not there. And it's that dual sort of nature that makes sarcasm really important, but also makes sarcasm really difficult because you have to sort of like give people something to guess at. Um, And People started noticing this problem. So there's this printer um, named uh, named Wilkins in 1575 who was like, we need a sarcasm punctuation mark. Here's what I propose. I think it was a backwards question mark. 1575? Um, 1575. This is a 500-year quest wow. to try to figure out how to do sarcasm in writing. And then every century thereafter, there's like another dude. They're all dudes. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) There's like another dude who's like, okay, but what if we did this to convey sarcasm in writing? Like Rousseau gets into it in France. They're in England. There's like somebody in the 1600s. There's several people in the 1700s, several people in the 1800s, bunch of people in the 1900s. Um, People propose, like there's one proposal that's relatively recent in the last like 20 years where they tried to like sell people a sarcasm punctuation mark for a dollar 99 just so your friends could have the you could have the privilege of conveying sarcasm if you want to pay a dollar 99 for a sark mark and it's like sark nobody mark. wants to spend a dollar 99 to that's, like get a sarcasm a punctuation deal. mark that's, yeah, i think that's fair I'm in. your friends yeah, no, can't even see it your friends can't even see it they have to pay a buck 99 to get your sarcasm <laughs> Like yeah, if you could if, get it, and then everyone could us, see it. If enough it. of us commit to sarcasm, then it'll work with the sark mark. I, I mean, like the sark mark. Maybe. Like you go first. <laughs> but that's the problem. Developing a universal standard of right. punctuation for this thing was the challenge, right? Right. Well, that's 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 a challenge, and 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 trying to convince people like, oh, you need to add this other symbol to your keyboards and stuff like that, because it's not just like, oh, I want to use this now. It's like, okay, but wait, how do I get access to this? How do I type it? How do I put it in my emails and messages and all this sort of stuff. But what people have started doing online is there are a whole bunch of different ways of conveying, like, here's this other additional meaning that I'm trying to send. One of them is the tilde. Sometimes people put the tilde in front of something to be like, oh, you know, my brand is strong. Mm-hmm. And you can put the tilde there. You can indicate, like, okay, this is a bit sarcastic. Um, sometimes people use even scare quotes are kind of sarcasm, the pre-internet sarcasm, or very important capitalization. <laughs> you might have seen that before. Uh, uh, or people do like, you know, the or sometimes people use like a like a period to indicate, okay, this is a little bit this is a little bit passive aggressive. I'm a little bit upset right now. Or like, you know, like, do you want to come do the thing? Fine, period. You're like, oh, but is that fine? <laughs> um, right. And that only works if you let people use punctuation creatively and not like the way it says to do in a grammar textbook because like we tried the grammar textbook thing for like 500 years and it didn't work. Okay, so you're (laughs) saying the sark mark lives within us all. The sark mark lives within us all and like not only do we have like one sarcastic punctuation mark but we actually have a whole range of them for like different subtle degrees of sarcasm. Mm. Which is just neat. Like people tried to do this for 500 years and then internet people in like a couple decades were like, oh yeah, we've solved this problem. 
That's so cool. So, okay, this is a really big question, but can you kind of let us know what you think are some of the biggest ways the internet has evolved communication or taken it back in some way? Things like, you know, we're talking about like emoji acronyms, uh, kind of categories of all of this. I think one of the biggest things about internet communication is like, how can I convey the attitude that I have uh, towards what I'm saying? Because if you think about formal kinds of communication, like if you write a book or like, oh, I wrote a book, that's fine. Uh, if you write a book or you you write, uh, you know, you, you have a newspaper article or something, they all kind of try to remove the author from the text. So you're just being like, I'm just going to present these facts dispassionately and I'm not really going to express my personality very, very much there. Or if you are expressing your personality, it's sort of in a fictional context where like, okay, I'm doing this stuff where like the characters are expressing their personality, but like I as the author, I'm not intruding. Um, and... The different thing about internet writing is you're communicating as yourself to other people as themselves, right? Like, so it's it's the person on the other end of the message. And you don't have as much of a delay in terms of when they receive it. And so you're trying to say things with a particular vocal inflection, with a particular tone of voice, with particular sort of associated gestures, with sarcasm, with all of that sort of like feeling behind it or expression behind it. So it's not just the words you're saying, it's also how you're saying them. Somebody asked me about uh, kids, like young kids, texting each other, texting people using emoji. Mm-hmm. Um, so like are you, like you have like a three-year-old sending like strings of emoji to like their auntie or their, you know, grandmother or something like this. And I got a bunch of examples from people of like how, how what are the kids doing? Like, how are they doing it? And the thing that was really interesting to me is like, they stopped using as many emoji once they learned, once they learned how to read. Uh. So it's not like the kids are never going to learn how to read because of emoji. It's like, no, they, they used emoji for a few years, kind of like training wheels of like, they learned how to use a keyboard with emoji. And then once they learned how to read, they're like, oh, words are great, actually. Uh, I'm going to use those too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's your hope for humanity side of things. But the thing that's exciting to me is sometimes the adult at the other end of the line. So like, here's your uncle so-and-so or whatever uh, at the other end of the line would like type words back to the kid, even though the kid's like two and obviously cannot read. Right. <laughs> so the kid sends you a bunch of like dino emoji and then you're typing back to a four year old. Oh, dinos. Like, that's great. You know, this kid can't read. But you also know that you're actually texting like your friend who's an adult's phone. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And that your friend who's an adult, who's this kid's parent, is going to read those words to the kid. Right. And when I think about like how I learned to read as a kid, like my parents read me books like as they as you do. But people didn't write me messages for me personally before I knew how to read them, because why would you do that? Right. But these kids are learning how to read, not just as a way of like participating in a broader global culture of of books, which is still great, but they're also learning how to read as a way of communicating with like the people they love who are really important to them. You know, like their aunts and their uncles and their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And reading can be a way of actually talking with the people you love, not just a way of communicating with the broader global culture, which is still cool. But it's much more intimate to be like, oh, reading and writing is a thing I do to you know, to connect with my friends and family. Like that's, that's intimate. It's coming back to spoken language. It's, it, it, you know, I think a, a big thesis of your research and book is like the internet is emulating spoken language so close, so much more closely than formal language. So of course we are texting in us in a conversational tone, but it's text. It's not speaking because we're using technology instead of 
being in the same room with someone as we have been for thousands of years, right? Right. And and like just like, you know, people can talk in all sorts of different ways and like you talk differently with, you know, your dog than you do with your boss. I mean, at least I hope so. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, maybe you're not going to have a have a dog for much longer. <laughs> Uh, the see, like you talk differently with different people, and that can be totally reasonable. And everybody kind of recognizes that's the thing you do. You can also write differently with different people. Like if you're writing a business mm-hmm. email versus if you're writing like a text to your best friend, you can write those differently, just like you talk to those people differently. And there doesn't have to be just like one way of doing things. And that's new for writing. It's, it's that's, that's never new. happened before. It's new ish for writing ish. because mm-hmm. people did write diaries and letters and stuff it's just that sort of as your average you know modern day person or like person looking back into history it's harder to find them and not everybody had access to them not everybody was literate not everybody had the you know time and so on to write so there was some amount of this informal stuff like when you look back into this historically you actually find like it's some letters from victorians and so on they do a lot of stuff that you might think of as sort of internetly emotive like people used hmm. to underline words so many times mm. if you want to emphasize something you can put like 17 underlines on it because you're writing <laughs> on a piece of paper and nobody can stop you <laughs> and now we can't underline things 17 times we have to do other stuff like put yeah. emoji around it or like asterisks <laughs> or capitals because we can't underline things as much as people used to be able to do <laughs> so speaking of how the medium influences the message in what ways have the platforms changed language as well so you just mentioned you know you can't underline on a keyboard but for instance like how i don't know if it was twitter but you know we now do at replies like and there was that time when facebook the statuses used to be like jen jamula is and you were supposed to like fill in what you were doing but people would just like write a full sentence it's like in what ways (laughs) Have the platforms changed the way people communicate? Yeah, there's there's a lot of those. One of the ones that I find really fun is is this thing like Facebook is where people will sort of narrate themselves in the third person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have this sort of imaginary constructed dialogue of like me looks at the clock, no, sees that it's after midnight. Me, I should go to bed. Me right. doesn't go to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right of like so you have this sort of like third person self narration of yourself and i haven't found a lot of examples of that before the internet it seems to be one of the things that started in so some of the really early chat rooms uh were actually started as uh, multiplayer online role playing games where people would get together on what were called muds multi user dungeons and that's dungeons as in dungeons and dragons and play role playing games online in text uh, and a lot of people like haven't heard of these because they they were not that popular even though they were they were popular in their time um and they're still around there's they are still around um some people are like oh my god muds and some people are like the what <laughs> <laughs> so it really it really depends on what quarters of the internet you live in but because muds were so based on role playing where you're you're trying to be like oh well, like i'm an elf now or whatever you did have and they were trying to kind of co-construct a story you'd be like oh like gives this to you or like gives gives the, this thing to this thing um and that seems to be one of the early sources for people narrating themselves in the third person which when you think about it is like a little bit weird because we didn't don't do that as much in speech except if we're trying to imitate sort of an internet genre right mm-hmm. right so you just spoke about gamers uh Gretchen, what do you think some of the most influential online communities have been for changing how we communicate like who's come up with some of the most pervasive slang or jargon Ooh, that's a good question i think one of the 
one of the things with early internet communities is there's a there's a file called the jargon file, which records a lot of sort of early computer science-y type people online and the slang they use with each other. But what you can see kind of at the corners of the jargon file is that a lot of the slang that actually is still used from there actually started on Usenet, which was also a, a different early platform that was more about socialization than about we're all going to be techie people together. And so it seems like the platforms where people are coming together to talk with people they don't already know seem to give rise to more internet slang or more internet interesting things than people where people already do know each other. So like I don't see a lot of new words coming up from Facebook, except in like Facebook groups where people join groups um, like the dog spotting group where they had a, their own kind of little slang in in there. Um, those points seem to to give rise to more innovation than, oh, I'm just talking to the same people that I went to high school with. And similarly, like, you know, Twitter, there's a lot on Twitter. There's a lot on, I mean, like TikTok and Vine have, have you know, brought in a, brought in a lot of things because, again, people are kind of going on there to sort of perform and connect with a larger audience. Do you have a favorite evolution of a word or a symbol? <laughs> I, I like how we've changed the way that we talk, we think about periods. Like, so periods, oh, yeah. it's kind of a fun one because it's a sort of sleeper hit where you're like, what's interesting about periods? It's just a dot. <laughs> like, why Why am I picking this? But what I like about it is that it shows sort of the difference between primarily like paper-based writing and like screen-based writing. Mm. Because so one of the things that I was trying to do when I was writing because internet was uh, think about okay like you know surely people were writing to each other informally like a bit before the internet came around because you did have letters and diaries and stuff how can I get access to some more of this stuff Jen has a really great treasure trove for you if you need okay more well diaries. you should send me that in the mail <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and that won't be creepy at all. <laughs> We've read them on the show, it's so true. it's, okay. it's okay. all good. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> so I went, I went looking for postcards, and a decent number of people have like scanned postcards and put them online. And there are these postcards, there's this whole book of postcards from the Beatles. And three out of the four Beatles, you know, write their postcards in like relatively standard writing styles that if you transcribe, they would just kind of look like a, like a short letter. But George Harrison, <laughs> if you transcribe his postcards, they look like a text from your dad. <laughs> really? <laughs> Leave it to George. <laughs> Leave it to George Harrison. So there's somebody who runs like a George Harrison fan blog who's like digitized a lot of his postcards and That's they're like available so on auction sites. Cause like once I realized that George Harrison was like the person to go to, I looked up like other George Harrison postcards that weren't yeah. in this collected Beals postcards book. Yeah. Uh, and George Harrison, man, what a guy. Uh, <laughs> well, that's so, so interesting because John Lennon gets all the love, but I feel like George Harrison's music was like way ahead of its time. I just recently started listening to George Harrison. I was like, whoa, this could be current. <laughs> so. I, I, I have to say I was not like originally a George Harrison fan when I started doing this. I was just trying to find postcards in general. And now I'm like, George Harrison, man, he's the best Beatle. <laughs> but you always have to be like the Beatles and George Harrison. Whereas right. if it's John Lennon, you can just be like, and John Lennon, because people know him without the Beatles. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and if you tra transcribe them, they look like a text from like your your mom or your dad. It's like, you know, hi, 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 Eileen, dash, here's this thing, dash, here's this thing, dash, or like, here's, like, we're, we've just arrived here, dot, dot, dot. We've just come to here, and then this thing happened, dot, 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 and then something else, dot, 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 hope you're doing well, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and you're like, you're using all these dots, 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 and dashes, because this is a question that people had for me when I was writing Because Internet, of like, can you explain 
why my parents, my grandparents, my boss are doing this dot, dot, dot thing. Like, mm. what's going on? And I was really determined to try to figure out what this was. And it turns out that it's a norm from pre-internet writing, informal writing, that didn't make its way into newspapers and didn't make its way into books, but it mm. made its way into handwritten stuff. Huh. Because even people in the past weren't talking like newspapers. Newspapers were always this sort of like formalized thing. Uh, people in the past were also writing informally. They were just doing so in much more limited context where it's like hard for someone to find a postcard. You know, not everybody, but like some people were doing this. And there's like, there's this old recipe card from, for like oat cookies that I found that also has like dot, dot, dot between all the steps of the recipe. It's like huh. cream the butter and the sugar, dot, dot, dot. Add the eggs, dot, dot, dot. I think it's really just a make your own recipe thing. You know, the dot, dot, dot is like you fill in the blanks, whatever you want. I mean, maybe, but you see it in a bunch of different examples. I think you should really be getting creative, you know? That's how uh, more modern people interpret the dot, dot, dot. That's how I'm taking it. (laughs) Exactly. You're a a person of your era. The message could be anything, you know? (laughs) Well, that's what people do. Like, like, internet-based people use the dot, dot, dot to indicate something left unsaid. Mm. Like there's there's something else here that could be left unsaid. Um, and if you're like dot like hey dot dot dot, you know maybe that's flirtatious, maybe that's passive aggressive, maybe that's a whole bunch of things. Like anything could be in that left unsaid bit. But people who are of an earlier generation are using it to be casual, right? right. And so there's this sort of shift there. And what modern day people use to be casual is they use like a line break or a message break. So you just like send a bunch of text messages with uh, like, uh, you know, like, hey, new message. What are you doing? <laughs> new message. <laughs> this kind of thing. And that's that's the sort of equivalent uh, if you're trying to map it onto a modern day thing. Because, like, paper is expensive. The postcard's only so big. You need to conserve space. And that's why you need to use a dot, dot, dot or a dash there. If you do a line break every time, you're going to run out of space too quickly. So Whereas on a screen, like, you're not hmm. going to run out of pixels. I'm old school. <laughs> I still send, like, paragraph long text sometimes. I'm sure people are really annoyed by it. Um, but my big, All of Jen's yeah. texts start with to whom it may concern. <laughs> <Dear Cole>. <laughs> um, my big internal debate with the period, which I'm sure, you know, everybody out there thinks sometimes is like, will it sound like I'm mad if I use the period? Right. Yeah. yeah. And like, there's so much going on there. And like, I had somebody who's a bit older who I won't, you know, <laughs> call out by name, be like, but how could people possibly consider that the period could have any sort of additional meaning? And I was like, cool. Yeah, that is exactly what your generation thinks mm-hmm. uh it's just that might be useful for you to know that there are other people who don't think this right. because sometimes you know people people will read because internet they come back to me and they're like oh i thought my boss just hated me but it turns out they're actually <laughs> a certain age right but i also mourn the loss of punctuation and there's so much that's misunderstood without punctuation i I mean, no one's stopping using punctuation entirely, right? It's they're using it for slightly different things. And in some cases, you know, it, it allows people to do more stuff and have more meaning, right? Because now you can convey sarcasm, which people tried to do for 500 years and didn't manage to succeed in doing. Right, mm-hmm. right. There's no there's no actual rules. It's just, do you understand me? Do I understand you? So it's like the difference between a forest and a garden, where the forest still has patterns, like the trees still grow up, not down. Mm-hmm. And the like these plants grow in the shade and these plants grow in the sun. And those are sort of emergent patterns of each of the individual organisms. Whereas our garden is like, I've decided this plant is going here by damn it. And here's where it's mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you can you can still have emergent patterns and rules and trends and like tendencies. 
without saying that like everything has to be exactly the same of like oh we have to all communicate in plain vanilla English because otherwise like rah, 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 I don't like you and it's like dude do we all have to communicate in plain vanilla English or can we have like other flavors of English also yes so I want to add on to what uh, sort of what Ali's getting at and the thing that fascinates me the most about internet colloquialism and language is that historically there are always generational divides in linguistics and slang and 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 culture but it was more on a, on, a, on a bit more of a continuum and now i do feel like there is a uh, a very big shift between people who have grown up with the internet in their on their screens and in their hands and people who didn't and it, and it's creating misunderstandings between generations and sometimes those are silly things like oh mom you thought this was, you know, I thought my boss hated me, but he well, actually like I doesn't. Thought, you thought whatever. LOL stood for lots of LOL, love. Lots That's of a love, classic yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but but I also I'm I am observing that you know I feel like I'm living in a completely different culture than my parents are, and we have very little to talk about because we inhabit different galaxies. So, what do you? Am I? Is that an overblown concern, or will this all come out in the wash once? We all ha- grow up with the internet, you know what I mean? I mean? Eventually, everyone who hasn't grown up with the internet will be dead, so... That's what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. Not to be morbid, but yes. Not to be morbid, uh, you know. but, you know, death comes for us all. I think, so it's an interesting question because, like, you do see other sorts of generational shifts among other types of technology. I read this book about the introduction of the telephone, and there was a similar sort of, like, you know, fathers not understanding why their young daughters wanted to be, have the phone so they could talk to their friends. And wasn't that frivolous? And blah, blah, blah. you know, uh-huh. Mark Twain was a very early telephone adopter, but he was also, like, really grumpy about it. <laughs> uh, and he, he really hated uh, hearing only half of a conversation. Uh, and he thought uh-huh. that was, like, the worst thing ever and completely unnatural and, like, terrible. <laughs> uh, and he also really hated overhearing his neighbors' conversations. He's, like, he's spending so much time trying to get my neighbors to shut up. And now they've got the telephone. <laughs> they won't stop talking day and night. <laughs> and you're, like, okay, Mark Twain, that's fine. <laughs> like, <Yeah. chill. laughs> To clarify the, my question, I am not and and really try never to be an old man and say, like, oh, the kids today with their TikTok. Like, that's not yeah, what this is. No. It is more about cultural division. Right. But I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of instructive to look back at other types of cultural division and see what sorts of complaints people had and see mm-hmm. how some of them feel kind of silly. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this quote from, you know, that's attributed to Socrates that's like, you know, if the kids learn how to write, they won't be able to memorize epic poems very well anymore yes, and yes, they'll forget exactly. things. It like, yep. And maybe we do lose parts of that oral culture when we have writing, but I don't think any of us would be like, well, therefore we shouldn't have writing. Uh, right. So it's it's sort of there's always a sort of interesting tension there. What I think a lot of it is is partly a sort of different set of cultural references, you know, because like a lot of my cultural references come from meme culture. They come from like, oh, here's this meme or like, here's this YouTube video. You know, like if I think uh, I'm I'm of the age where like if somebody says like badger, badger, badger to me, I'm like, oh, I have to reply. <laughs> Um, the the like there are some things that are just kind of indelibly embedded that's like a micro generation of like five years that like i have to do this yeah Um, a micro generation yeah and 
you know, there's a there's a lot of sort of fragmentation of pop culture where it's not like everybody's watching the six o'clock news and seeing the exact same sort of bits of, of pop culture. But like, mm-hmm. you know, if we go back to the Beatles, like the parents didn't approve of the Beatles either, right? You know, like, oh, there's Beatlemania and the kids are like way too obsessed with this band and, you know, who approves of it? And now it's like the Beatles, they're a golden oldie and we we love them now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't I don't know if there's ever been an era where like the, the older generation entirely approved of or understood the younger one. No, it's not about approval. I, going back to Socrates, um, writing as a technology took many, many years and generations to become a prominent f- literacy, to become a prominent factor in human civilization, whereas the internet dropped on us and in 10 years completely changed our culture. So I guess I'm asking a question about future shock of like, this was not a gradual thing. It was an explosive generational division that at its simplest, you know, least uh, nefarious ways causes friction between parents and kids, but at its most nefarious causes, you know, disinformation and people not understanding what they're seeing and credibility and all this other stuff. And, and I, and, and we have talked a lot about it in the show about how certain people and certain generations can look at the internet and parse what is real and what is not. And other people who have less internet literacy because gosh, dang, it came up so fast, um, <laughs> are not able to parse good and bad information. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And is think, it related to linguistics? Well, so I think it relates to a thing. So what, when I was looking into the sort of history of like the dot, dot, dot and why people use it and stuff like that. And I asked a number of people who, who use it, you know, why do you use the dot, dot, dot? Uh, or why do you use why do you do, why do you do this thing? And the answer that they had for me was always phrased in terms of like correctness, in terms of like, mm-hmm. well, but this is right or this is correct or like this is mm-hmm. what I should do. And the thing that's ironic there is right, like, because it's kind of not because you like you don't pick up a newspaper and see people putting dot 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 every other sentence. Like, it it's not actually, but the the logic in their heads was. I'm always thinking about the sort of red pen of my high school English teacher when I'm mm. writing, even if the high school teacher English teacher is long gone and dead and is reading my text messages with my children. Mm-hmm. They were thinking of language in terms of this sort of binary correctness, even regardless of their ability to actually instantiate that. Yeah, but what about Merriam-Webster? Because I feel like they would disagree. Okay, and the well, just let me finish my point, okay? <laughs> no! No, just kidding. Go on. <laughs> So, and the the question that I asked uh, people who were who were keen on on doing other things with punctuation and saying, okay, well, I'm going to use this sort of creative approach to punctuation, or I'm going to send out different messages, um, was, uh, wh- you know, why are you doing things you do there? And their answers were always framed in terms of the other person on the other end of the line. Well, like, if I don't, then this person will think I'm mad at them, or if I don't, then this person will think that I'm this, and it's. That seems to be one of the generational shifts in writing is, are you thinking about the other person that you're communicating with specifically, or are you thinking of a sort of abstract imagined audience? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. And it's a sort of a, an internet shift because the internet gives us direct access to our audiences. You know, people can actually reply to your text immediately or they can reply to your email. Whereas if you're writing a, a, a book or do, you know putting something in a, in a newspaper or something, you you don't have that sort of direct access to the audience. And so you do have to imagine an abstracted audience of like whoever's in your head is your imagined audience. And so I think that's that's a big shift of like who who is actually on the other side of the screen and, and what are you actually trying to say to them? Yeah, 
I'm just kind of sad because I like uh, I like grammar. Like you know, this is the death of the grammar Nazi. You well, know, and generally I'm I... okay with Nazis dying, but for this one, <laughs> it's a little complicated. I, I like grammar too. I you know I have a whole podcast about grammar, um, but I I I think it's it's possible to uh, like something while not trying to hate on other people for liking it. You know, like if I'm a fan of birds, I'm not going around being like, okay, I like birds, but like except for you, you birds suck. You know, <laughs> or like I like I like whales except for you whales who are doing it wrong. Like I. I want to be able to like all the birds or like all the whales and I can have my favorites, but I don't know if it mean that, that like some of them are doing it wrong. And I think it's, it's really fun to have a kind of curious approach to language rather than a judgmental approach to language, you know, it lowers your blood pressure. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that, that turned my brain around on grammar years and years ago was to understand it as not a rigid set of rules imposed by Merriam Webster, but as that it is as fluid and evolving as language itself. Spanish has a different grammar than English, obviously, because they're different mm -hmm. languages. And Northeastern US language or English has a slightly different grammar than Alabama English. And yeah. the, the both have grammar, but the grammars are different, just like dialects are different. Exactly. And they that both... was like, whoa, okay, and, I get it now. And like, you know, there are some older dictionary makers that were pretty, you know, stick up their asses sort of type people, but modern dictionary makers, and I know some people who work for Merriam-Webster, <laughs> the, uh, they're, they call themselves descriptivists too, because they're kind of wandering around with a notebook being like, all right, let's take notes of what people are doing and we'll write down mm. what people are doing and put it in the in our dictionary. Uh, and and they're, they also have this sort of curious attitude towards language that doesn't get attributed to them. But when you actually talk with mm. them, they're like, oh, yeah, no, we're just excited about language and we're excited about language changing. And we find that really interesting. But how do your friends who work there feel about Urban Dictionary? They think it's really interesting. <laughs> um, it's it's a different kind of dictionary. You know, people put in uh, all sorts of stuff. And dirty. sometimes yeah. it's... Mm -hmm. So, well, and sometimes Brings it's us right just back weird. To the fucking, so I'm glad we're coming full circle. <laughs> if you look up, here's your challenge. Um, you look up your own name in Urban Dictionary. It's oh. the only positive thing. <laughs> look up the names of your friends in Urban Dictionary because a bunch of people, because there's no editorial control in Urban Dictionary, and a bunch of people will have gone on and they'll either have said like extremely positive things, like is the best friend ever who you could imagine, <laughs> or like totally sucks and is like the worst person. And you're like, these are some like high school students who are just trying to like, <laughs> you know, snipe at each other. Wait, can I tell you mine? Yeah, yeah go. <laughs> Jen. All right, it starts it starts out good, but then it, it changes. A smart beautiful <laughs> a smart beautiful funny kind and talented girl who is an amazing friend in person. Jen struggles with confidence and puts up with more than an average person, but everybody else can see how amazing she is. <laughs> you can imagine like someone wrote this for their friend Jen. That's great. Yeah, and someone else wrote avocado taco. Which is when you stick your balls into a vagina. No, wow. Alex. All right. Woo. I think, don't um, quote me on that, but I think that's the official definition of an <laughs> well, That's a new one to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, but it's like, it's, it, it's, it just does a very different thing. And if you like, you can definitely find new, new slang there and it's, 
impressive how fast Urban Dictionary can be with new slang because they don't have editorial oversight. You don't have to approve of something. Like, no one has to approve of something. There's no gatekeepers. And so you kind of get the good with the bad there. Uh, whereas a dictionary that has an editorial process is going to be slower by definition. But right. I, you know, I think lexicographers have a really thorough appreciation of Urban Dictionary. So where do you see all of this heading, Gretchen? Any uh, linguistic trends that you would forecast in the next few years? That's a good question. I think, you know, video is definitely something that is, you know, con- continually going on. I would love to see somebody doing, I hope there's someone who's like writing a thesis on TikTok right now. I want to read it. <laughs> Please let me know if you are. <laughs> I really, I really want to see that. Because uh, like the academic publishing cycle is always a little bit slower than uh, than <laughs> other stuff. I, I'd really like to see uh, more people sort of experimenting with like virtual spaces, especially because we're all sort of in lockdown and not, you know, interacting with each other. You know, how can we do stuff that makes virtual spaces better and makes them more engaging to to talk with each other? And I think like this year for all of its terrible features, maybe it'll turn into the year that we figure out how to do do virtual stuff a bit better. All right, Gretchen. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, it's It's been awesome to hear your thoughts. And everybody, check out your book, Because Internet. Um, if they would like, what, how can they find you and, and your work? So you can go to GretchenMcCulloch.com or search Gretchen and any spelling of McCulloch, and Google will probably get you there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as we my heard, pod- spelling doesn't matter. <laughs> my my podcast is called Lingthusiasm if you want to hear uh, linguistics in your ears uh, a lot uh, and yeah they already said my book is Because Internet and I'm on Twitter as Gretchen A. Mixie is it all falling apart? Is it all getting better? I don't know what's happening with language. I can't tell. Gretchen seems to think it's okay so I'm going to say it's okay <laughs> <laughs> lol lol <laughs> yeah but yeah like some things like that will never translate to spoken language I don't think right so maybe it is okay <laughs> i was gonna say idk and be like a real asshole but um i don't know i really <laughs> like grammar and i like grammar rules and i'm i'm a bit of a grammar nazi and i'm not so thrilled <laughs> no, what's interesting to me is like i think it's okay like i will often intentionally leave out grammar because i think it's like funnier that way but like i would like people to know when they're doing it and not doing it Mm. You know, when they're being, I I want people to be intentional, but you know, I don't know because I think most people are dumb, man. Well, most people are dumb, but but (laughs) Gretchen's, Gretchen's, you are there. But <laughs> but, d- but dumbness is it's the difference between formal language and informal language. Yeah. So if someone is trying to be formal and writing a, you know, a scientific research paper and they can't use spelling or punctuation, then that would be considered that would be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. But just because that same scientist writes lol in a text message, yeah. it's a different context and that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't indicate a decay or a or a transgression of of language or or yeah. language is is evolving. It's it's more about norms and standards. And it's interesting to hear you, Allie, say that you're like, I'm a big fan of the man, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary who tells us woman, how to write and but... speak. Sure. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, yeah, no, I, that's I just, the old way. I, I, I like it. I don't know. Things, things are changing faster than ever because the internet in so many different realms, mm-hmm. perhaps all realms. So it's interesting to see, you know, the linguistic impacts as well. And her, yeah, her book is really fascinating. Like so many minutiae that I hadn't even considered. And the way she frames it is very interesting to me. I have a real dumb question. There are no dumb questions, only dumb people. Okay. <laughs> I'm just a real kidding. Dumb That's person a about to ask a question. Stop. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if kids aren't learning cursive anymore, 
how will they sign their names? Will it just be like in print? Yes. Have you <laughs> signed? I, I wait because increasingly... they're not they're not using cursive, right? That's what we. I don't think kids are being taught cursive anymore, but I could be wrong. But from what I've heard, it's just not being taught in schools. Yeah. Hey, a who cares? It's a stupid <laughs> thing. But B, uh, yeah, we'll be using biometric data. Signatures are going to be obsolete. Yeah, but also, like, have you signed a document recently? Most of it is like, type your name on this line and hit submit. And that is a legally binding document. You don't need to use a pen from (laughs) the 19, you know, 10s. I mean, I I still, I don't do a ton of like online. I still like have checks. I have a checkbook. (laughs) Right. Really? I do do sign my my name My mother the other day was like horrified that she was like, I like signed into my account to find my routing number. And she was like, where's your checkbook? I was like, what are you talking about, mom? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't Jen keep a tight checkbook. checkbook, but I have one. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. Just for show. It's like art now. You like put it on the wall. Like, ah, checks, books. <laughs> That's yeah. a very particular question about, you know, a norm or a piece of technology. But, but again, I think Gretchen would say, don't confuse writing and language. Language is an innate spoken thing that is, that is natural to all humans. Writing is a technology. It is a different thing that can be typing on a phone it could be writing with a quill it could be a language this language or that language it's it definitely be formal, it could be quill. informal yeah, definitely. yeah. <laughs> uh, they're not the same they're not equi- they're not equivalent i think right. most linguists would say yeah all right well we as always would love to hear your thoughts about what we discussed today do you agree with the oxford comma or no tweet me i'm at ellie gold i'm oh at my God. oxford team oxford comma all the fucking <laughs> me too, actually see what yeah. i'm saying see what i'm saying you can email us at 2G1podcast at gmail.com, comma, and you can uh, text us or you can leave us a voicemail, and that number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6LIT. Well done. Thank you. Finally, if you would like to join our Discord server and talk with us and listeners of the show and sometimes guests, go to discord.gg slash 2G1P. We would love to see you there. Ali, if they want to contribute to our Patreon, how do they do it? Please go to patreon.com slash 2G1P. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Two Girls, One Podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Jennifer Jamula, then used by millions around the world to learn the filthiest words in English. I mean, produced and edited by Matt Silverman in New York City. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Have a lot of condoms. <laughs>